You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, are you having a rough one? Yeah. It's oh, it's only Monday. A little bit of a rough one on what's, Monday. What's Is it anything you want to talk about? Because you showed up with a, with a box of beer. I Monday afternoon, you, you showed up with a box of beer to record the, the co-main event podcast. I brought you one. I, yeah, no, I know. I noticed. I'm not, I'm not accusing you of, uh, not sharing. I'm accusing you of alcoholism. I don't have to defend my choices to you or to anybody. I suppose that's true. I just wanted to put a disclaimer at the, at the beginning of this episode. If you start mumbling shit to yourself and, and saying, you know, crazy stuff that the people should know that the demon alcohol is within you. Listen, can I just have a beer in the afternoon on a pleasant, sunny afternoon such as this? And I can't sit here and look at your face stone cold sober for a full damn hour. Let's be reasonable. It just, it seems like maybe you've begun a downward spiral. This is between me and my sponsor. That's <laughs> all I have to say about this. <laughs> I suppose it is. I guess we're not going to get to the bottom of that one. Uh, once again, this episode of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. Baseball is underway and DraftKings has you covered all season long. DraftKings is the official daily fantasy sports partner of Major League Baseball. And with 162 games on the docket, that's an awful lot of chances to win. Daily fantasy means no season long commitments. Why wait until the end of the season to claim victory when you can win huge cash every day? Just pick two pitchers and eight position players, stay under the salary cap, and you could be on your way to an enormous payday. We told you about this dude, Peter from Colorado, who won a million bucks at DraftKings in just one day playing fantasy baseball. Hundreds of thousands of fantasy sports fans have already cashed in at DraftKings. Now it's your turn. What are you waiting for? Jump online and pocket some cash and live like Peter from Colorado. Ben. Tell them about the, the special offer. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com now and enter code CME to play for free. You could win part of the $300 million in prizes being awarded this season. Enter CME for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Now tip your head back. Put your arms out. I want you to touch the tip of your nose with your fingertip. You know, you act like I'm in here just throwing down tequila shots instead of leisurely sipping at a beer. Three on a, rounds. On a pleasant afternoon. Three rounds, as usual, this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, the Reebok numbers are out, and let's just say we hope Pretty Tony has a guy for cogent wealth management strategies and better safe than sorry retirement plans, because ain't nobody getting rich off this shoe deal. It's <sighs> a good mean, beer. You sure you don't want one of these? At least not the get people who actually have to wear the shoes. I get you one right here. Look, man, I got to go pick up my daughter after we're done here. You think I want to show up smelling up. like booze and dirty strippers? Here we go. Heads up. Just there is. face all blotchy over there, stumbling around. In round number two, Stipe. Hey. Stipe? 
Oh, Stipe. Stop it, Stipe. Dude, Stipe. Stipe. In round number three, just a couple of tough as shit legends fighting in the middle of the morning in the Philippines while y'all sit there in your underwear, eating your cocoa pebbles and your peanut butter puffins. Hard to complain about that. Peanut butter puffins. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time. Let's do a bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes from David Golden. He writes, UFN 65 has come and gone, and it turned out this card was a pretty fun watch. But before Dana White tries to cram the fact that this card didn't suck down my goddamn throat, I want to say this card is the exception, not the rule. This card was not going to convince me to sign up for Fight Pass, not even on a free trial basis. How many people wanted to stay up super late to take in a Dan Kelly fight? You guys remember his last fight? It I was not. Awful in all caps. I'll take your word for it. I think we talked about how awful it was. Okay. I, but I only say that because as I was watching this event, I, I noticed his, his knee braces and I thought, oh yeah, we, we talked about how awful this guy's fight was before. Well, but I don't remember gets, what it was. He got knocked out in the first minute, so I guess you can't complain about this one. To top it off, one of the, one of the sport's beloved fighters, Mark Hunt, had to endure a beating that went on far too long, not only leaving him with a black eye, but stamping this card with one as well. Ouch. Discuss. It does have the unfortunate effect of like the thing we see last kind of leaving a bad taste in the mouth, uh, as that just one-sided beat down, uh, of Mark Hunt just stretched on and on and on. And if it had, if it had ended, you know, maybe in the third round, I think we would have all remembered this card pretty positive. For one thing, it would have ended, you know, like 15 minutes earlier and it, you wouldn't have this guy complaining about being up so damn late, which I feel you there. Uh, but on the other, you know, you had a lot of fun, exciting stuff going on, a bunch of finishes and everything before that point. I feel like if you just had maybe a little better officiating or just like a corner that was not trying to get Mark Hunt killed out there, uh, then maybe we take a different view of this card. Yeah, you really should have got that stoppage in the third round. Uh, I think we'll probably talk about that more in, in round number two as we get to it. Uh, but I think that the point here is well taken from David Golden. Like this represents kind of the, the top end of what you could expect just sheer in sheer fun wise True. from a UFC fight pass card. And so we need to give it its props for just because of that. Uh, but also, like, I think that it makes a good point just that we're dealing with a completely different landscape of the sport now, where this is the kind of thing that we have become accustomed to watching, whereas this, you know, this fight card is completely different than a fight card that you would have seen from the UFC four and five years ago. And there's a difference really between, you know, between, uh, good, fun fights that are fun to watch because Robert Whitaker knocks out Brad Tavares in 44 seconds or Sean O'Connell knocks out Anthony Parrosh in 56 seconds. Uh, my jar full of dead spiders, by the way, having some trouble making it through customs, but it's on its way to Australia. Good. Eventually good. there's a difference between those kind of fights and relevant interesting contender fights, right? And I per personally prefer the latter. Like there's nothing wrong with watching a, a, a fun fight, but like when you're dealing with the top level of the sport in the world, I kind of want something extra from those people. And I still, even now, even though we're what, like two years into the fight pass of over a year into the fight pass.com. And you know, we're, we're several years into the Fox deal. Part of me still, still aches. Every time I, we have oh, to no. do this, it's, oh, no. it's, I, I can't forget how the way things used to be. I can't forget how things used to be. It, it troubles me to think of you aching. 
Just over there aching and whatnot? Well, if you want to get up and come over here and apply some some of that manly strength to the trapezius area. Maybe a beer would make you feel better. <laughs> Do you think that would loosen me up? See, now you're just trying to enable me because <laughs> I made you feel bad at the beginning of the show. Just you don't want to be sitting over there pressure. drinking alone. Just, I mean, I have no problem drinking alone. But uh, here's a question for you. How do you think your concept of this fight card would have changed if it had aired at like 9 a.m. in the one true time zone on like a Saturday morning? Because I feel like that builds something into our psyche. Like you're not asking me to stay up super late even though it's still the exact same stuff, the exact same like method of delivery onto my TV screen. I, I feel like that does something different to our minds and we – our expectations are different. Like we don't – we didn't – use this same like kind of metric on that fight from Krakow uh, that was just a few weeks ago. I, I think that if they could, if you can do that, it makes it feel like less, like we don't have to justify what we're doing with our lives on Saturday night quite as much. Well, then the good news for you is that Uriah Faber against Frankie Edgar coming up this weekend will be right in the middle of the morning See, there you here go. in our time zone. There you go. But I also think that part of the problem is that we're still trying to watch a new UFC product according to old UFC product rules. Yeah. Right? Like, we still expect ourselves to watch all of the preliminary fights, of which there were eight on this card, and then only four on the main card. They were all on the fight pass, so I don't really know how you differentiate between the two. But Different streams. you got to change up your streams. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, there's, there's still some peer pressure that we're all going to watch all the fights and all the events, and that we're all going to watch them live. Like, I had a different viewing experience than you did, because I didn't stay up and watch this, this live. I caught up with it after the fact and super easy by the way to breeze through all the fights when most of them are ending in 56 seconds yeah uh and so like if this is the way that it's gonna be all the time forever on into infinity maybe we just need to adjust our expectations not only for like what kind of product we're gonna get but in terms of like fan behavior as well uh, and that's kind of sad, I think, because that means that we're settling for a thing that we know is not as cool as the thing that we used to like. But also maybe that's just pragmatic. Well, it doesn't seem like we have that much of a choice. Like your choices are either to readjust your thinking and settling for that the way you mentioned it or just saying to hell with it. I'm not going to do it the way you tried to boycott Fight Pass for a long time. Uh, you say that like my boycott ended, but anyway, uh, let's just move on to the next question because I think it plays into, into the, this idea from Josh Montgomery. He writes, what can a fan like me who loves the UFC product, but is very pro worker slash union do to help the fighter cause to make more money and gain a bigger voice. I feel like a simple retweet of an angry tweet is not going to go far enough. I think a true partnership with effort between fighters, media, and fans that care could help the fighters' cause. I want the UFC product to remain awesome. Actually, I want it to stop getting watered down. But as a union guy and a practicing martial artist, I want all the fighters to receive a bigger voice and get a bigger chunk of the pie. It's the fighters that make the fights, not the CEOs. Let's face it, if it's it's... It's not a cheap sport to be a fan of with cable bills, high ticket prices that are on a card subject to change, fight pass events if you're a hardcore fan, and of course $60 monthly pay-per-views. I want the fighters to get a bigger chunk of my Benjamins, and over the years I've spent a lot of Benjamins following this thing. What can we do from a fan point uh, to move this in the right direction for the fighters? I feel like this is the million-dollar question in the wake of this week's 
uh, revelation of what the actual Reebok payout numbers are going to be. Uh, and a question that I've thought a lot about, not necessarily that I have an answer, but just because I feel like this Reebok uh, news was was yet another backbreaker kind of in terms of how much attention we're going to pay this sport moving into the future, like another uh, stone on top of the mounting wall of doubts about how much good, smart and well-meaning people can invest in this sport. Uh, you know, and how long it can go on. Because if you're not conflicted at some, on some level, either covering this sport or watching it as a fan, like you're, I think you're just like not paying attention or you just don't care, which is, is too bad. Well, you know, and that's the thing I wonder, cause I too, I, I was thinking about this question after we decided to use it. And one of the things that was so intriguing about it to me was I was just like, man, I really, I don't think I have an answer. Like, I don't even think I know really where to start with answering this question for you. And I think, if you did, you know, by all means, somebody who, who feels like they got this one figured out, let us all know, because I think that this is a, a question people are wondering. But I also wonder, you know, Danny Downs and I go back and forth on, on this sort of issue, particularly. Uh, it comes up a lot in trading shots. And Danny, I guess maybe as from the ex-fighter perspective, feels like fans just basically don't really give a shit. Like fans do not care if, if fighters are well paid. Uh, they think that they're lucky just to be doing this at all. Um, should be happy to get any sort of money. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't fans out there like that, but I, I do, I think that there are plenty of people who, especially if the hardcore fans, which is, you know, we're just talking about fight pass events. Who else are you selling those to? If not the hardcore fans, I think those people who are paying attention, yeah, they do see these issues. And, you know, if you have any sort of like empathy, in your body whatsoever, how can you not feel a little bit for the fighters? I mean, they're the ones that make this sport work and, and make it what it is. So yeah, you, how do you not want to see them treated better? And has it not depressed you to, to feel like, you know, sometimes you're watching this sport where the people who do it don't know how long they can continue to, to do this with their lives. Uh, Cause it's just not feasible anymore. And it seems like we're just like sliding ever more in that direction. And so I, I mean, I don't know, but it's also one of those things like whenever you see a fighter jump on and try to do the thing of like some kind of crowdfunding effort so that we can like just directly give our Benjamins to them instead of funneling them through the UFC to disperse as they see fit, uh, that fighter then takes a bunch of shit uh, that we like that idea in theory, but nobody actually really wants to do it in practice. Yeah, and you're facing a really strange uh, political landscape inside the fight industry, right? Because you even have fighters coming out this week to blast other fighters who had tried to stick up for themselves in terms of getting what they see as the shaft in this, in this Reebok deal. And it would be hard to think of a, an action on the part of fans, a collective action on the part of fans that would not be spun as anti-fighter. Yeah. The people that would want to spin it that way. But I like your idea. Maybe we open this up to the co-main event universe and we say, what ideas do you got? Because we're drawing a blank over here. And maybe it's because we've been underwater with this thing for too many years. It's hard for us to, to peer out of it. So if you have any ideas about how people can support fighters and how the, uh, the fan base could help affect real change, let us know and we will feature them on our podcast. I feel like that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's something to do because we have a smart and engaged listenership. We do. And we're lucky to have that. And questions like this, I think highlight that. And I, and I also, I mean, I, one of the things I keep coming back to is I feel like every time we talk about this, the way I end up 
the, the, the side I get come down on is like, it has to come from the fighters, you know, but at the same time, you can see why it, to them, it feels like, Hey, somebody help us out here. Like they, I'm sure they feel like they have so many constraints on them that they don't know exactly how to do it. And there's always that issue of like, it's not really a sport that promotes a whole lot of cooperation between fighters. So, I mean, I don't know how you, how you break that deadlock unless it just has to get so bad that something has to happen. And even, you know, we always have a, discussions about a fighter's union, uh, sometimes in kind of pie in the sky terms, like that's just going to be a quick and easy fix and, and we're going to get representation at the negotiating table and then all is going to be well. But like anything that you try to do is going to be a long and hard battle. And I think that everyone involved has to be ready for that. Uh, just because you are dealing with the disparate, uh, population of, of workers who don't necessarily want to help each other out all of the time. And you're dealing with a company that's owned by one of the most notorious anti-union business owners in Las Vegas. So, uh, it would be a tough, a tough road, but I mean, at this point, and we'll probably talk about this in round number one, the, the, the elimination of third party sponsors and with it, possibly one of the major revenue streams that, that fighters, have enjoyed and the elimination of one of the revenue streams that they've enjoyed that was not in some way directly controlled by their employer uh, really makes you feel like something has to happen. Like this is a last straw type situation because if it doesn't, you're just going to kind of keep slumping forward with the status quo and, and things will not get better. In fact, they might get worse. Huh? There you so go. That's sobering, right? Yeah. Uplifting. Uh, Two-part question now. Actually, two questions that go together. First one from Tanner Hartley. He writes, the UFC Fan Expo is apparently rejecting all other apparel brands from having booths due to the Reebok deal. How is that sustainable? Are you fucking kidding me? Please discuss. The next question from da Jake Neusser, uh, who I believe is involved with the business Fight Chicks. I believe he's the co-owner of Fight Chicks. He writes, Fight Chicks, with an X, was emailed an invite to the UFC Fan Expo. We responded twice for more information with no response. We contacted our old contact with the Expo, and he put us in touch with the new person in charge of the Expo. He let us know we were effectively uninvited, uninvited stating that Reebok would be the only apparel brand and Muscle Farm the only supplement company. Thoughts on this decision in the long and short term? I call it an Expo if there will be two booths and a bunch of autograph lines. Yeah, I saw this, and I think it was uh, Fight Chicks kind of uh, screenshotting the email that put this into the consciousness of, of fans that, hey, wait a minute, the, the expo is going to follow these rules too. And I guess in a way it makes sense because the expo falls on the, the same weekend as when the Reebok deal actually kicks in, does it not? In July? Uh, that I don't know. I believe it does. I believe they all kind of coincide together. But it is weird, especially because I remember, for one thing, that expo is, it's kind of a crazy scene to begin with. Have you been to that? Yeah, well, I went to the one that was in Houston. Oh, okay. Uh, before, what was it, UFC 132 or whatever it was? Maybe it's just my own, like, fear of big crowds. And... Oh, no, I walked through it and did not like it. No. Chuck Mindenhall and I walked around in there. I think we did a radio spot with somebody back when we were both working for ESPN, and, and we didn't stay that long because it yeah. was, as they call in the professional wrestling industry, a schmoz. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, like, panic-inducing even. But the last one I went to in Las Vegas, and I think it was, like, a couple of years ago, and it seemed like there was a noticeable, like, decline in just the how many booths and stuff they had and I'd heard that they had, had trouble selling booths and everything. And so it does make you wonder like, okay, if you just take out all the apparel companies, 
Like, it seemed to me last time it was like 60% people selling t-shirts and stuff. Like, who was going to be there? If Like, I, I don't really get how that works. Is, is it just going to be a thing where you show up and there's like a grappling tournament and there are guys signing autographs and then, you know, there's like a booth with like hard liquor and somebody selling like e-cigarettes and Fram. stuff. Fram. I'm sure Fram will have a booth so you can pick up your air filters. Maybe some corn nuts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, probably a Bud Light booth where Tommy's there passing out little paper cups of Bud Light. Poor Tommy. Tasters. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't exactly know exactly like what you're going to be left with, uh, when you go to the, the expo. I mean, I guess you're going to sell us on just the whole experience of fighters being around. And I know a lot of people go for the grappling tournament kind of stuff there. Uh, it just does seem like this, this can't be really like great publicity for you. It feels like all these people who have kind of supported you for the, all these years and these like niche industries, um, and who have been around and, and been part of the scene and now suddenly, you know what, we don't need you anymore. Like, how do you expect them not to be pissed off and then other people not to be pissed off on their behalf? Yeah. And it's interesting to think about fighters being there because you mentioned it and then the emailer mentioned autograph lines as well. But my experience with the fan expo was that most of the fighters were there on behalf of their sponsors, right? Like right, you could go way. over to the bad boy booth and Stipe and Shogun would be over there signing autographs and, Anthony Rumble Johnson be hanging out with the tap out guys who are like busting his balls the entire time. And to, to say that, time. to say that those sponsors can't be there anymore, uh, I think would eliminate a lot of fighter participation unless the UFC mandates that there's going to have to be fighters there signing autographs, which again is just then another, uh, thing that you have to do for the UFC that you may or may not get paid for. Uh, and it kind of undermines one of the talking points that I, we're going to talk about in round one, but for the Reebok deal that says, Hey, they're basically saying like fighters can still have their sponsors, man. They just can't wear them at UFC events. They can't wear them into the, into the cage, but you can keep all of your sponsors. And this sort of like kind of speaks a lie to that because yeah, you can keep your, your, your sponsors, but they're just not going to be welcome anywhere around this company. So why would they, why would those sponsors want to spend money to like have you around if you're not, if you are not going to be able to use your, you know, weird quasi celebrity to help them at, at, the place where all the fans are going to be. Yeah. So well, it's and, weird. And not only like, why would they feel like it was worth their marketing dollar to stick around if they can't be involved in stuff like this? Like there's got to be some kind of like personal hurt on, on the part, especially of people who like, you know, where it's one or two people who own some of these businesses and have been around for a few years, they're going to be mad at you. And like, they're like an element of spite is probably going to kick in. And that like, how do you expect like, this is not going to result in a bunch of people just going like, all right, damn it. What's going on in Bellator? Let's call Scott Coker right about now and have a conversation with him. Yeah. And he, he said the phone's been ringing in his classic kind of understated Scott, oh, Scott. Coker style. And then the, then Bellator also signed, uh, Ed Ruth today. That's right. Uh, standout Amer American wrestlers probably headed for the 2016 Olympics and I think would be a middleweight in mixed martial arts and was considered a, a blue chipper, if you will. And, uh, you know, he's a guy, an athlete who comes in from a different sport that has probably a bunch of pre-existing sponsorships. Uh, and, and it might have been a, a better deal for him to go over there and sign with Bellator. Uh, and we may talk about that more in round one too. I suspect we will. Uh, let's do one more question here and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the discussion in earnest. This question from Pedro Cairo, he writes, I'm a Portuguese living in Belgium, just on the border with the Netherlands. I'm also an avid MMA fan and a Fight Pass subscriber. By the way, co-main event podcast, world motherfucking wide. Worldwide! 
Last event in Europe was in Poland where Krokop did his thing. To my surprise, the event was blocked on Fight Pass for certain countries, Belgium and Netherlands included. Are you fucking kidding me? That's in all caps. Uh, talking to a Dutch friend of mine that just realized the same was happening in the Netherlands, outrage and curse words were plenty. So the UFC says that European cards are for European fans, Asian cards are for Asian fans, but they block the continent for the people, they block the content for the people who want to see it. Right. Trying to come up with an explanation, the only thing that came to mind was that they want to force European fans to watch the event on regular TV, which I would if it was on TV. Let's face it, it is and it will always be a niche sport. Sport channels here play 90% football, which you call soccer. But my biggest surprise was reserved for this Saturday, where the amazing card in fucking Australia was also blocked. What's the UFC's end game with Fight Pass? Who's it intended for? What's really going on? I guess I'll just go back to the good old-fashioned way, steal it. Let's see, I, I was, uh, I, I don't know what to say to this question, so I emailed uh, Ant Evans from the UFC, who I know does a lot of the stuff with Fight Pass. Breaking news here on the co-main event well, podcast. Well, I don't know if I would go that far. Um, just to kind of ask him, like, wait a minute, is is our, our Portuguese friend, uh, by the way, is that what they say? I'm a Portuguese? There's no, like, I just a, read it how he wrote it, I know, man. I know you did, um, but, you know, is was he just screwed by living in Belgium? Is it on a channel that he doesn't get? Did he just not know that it was on TV or what? And uh, he said that if fight pass if a fight pass event is blocked out in your country, then it's because of some like local uh, like it's on TV somewhere through some broadcast agreement. But also, and this is something I hadn't really thought too much about, um, because of the UFC's different broadcast agreements all over the place. Uh, it's kind of just different and depending on where you are, which is tough because as, as Ant Evans pointed out and, and I had not thought about, you know, a lot of these fans, if you're in, regardless of, you know, if you're in Ireland or you're a Portuguese living in Belgium, uh, or you're in New Jersey or whatever, you're, you're all mostly getting your MMA news from like the same cluster of like four or five websites or something. And most of them are, you know, North American based. And so, like, we will go on and be like, oh, there's a Fight Pass card this weekend. Or, like, when we talk about it on the podcast and it's always just, like, there's a Fight Pass card. And depending on where you are, maybe it's not. And he was saying he had the same struggle when, you know, the UFC was on FX and, like, they'd be in the United Kingdom. And we're all talking about it like, hey, there's a UFC on FX 9 event or something. And he's, like, trying to, like, constantly counter that and be like, no, it's on ESPN for you guys, like, in the UK. And that's kind of like a battle that they constantly have to fight there. And I guess that is one of the the drawbacks of having, like, some... Some you know, local broadcast deals, some like fight pass deals, uh, and it, it does seem like kind of a like I don't know what you what you're supposed to do about that. It seems like there's just so many different possible contingencies. Like, how do you get the word out to everybody to make sure they know exactly how they can watch it? Yeah, that does that does seem like a problem, and I guess. In the interest of fairness, sort of a point counterpoint. Pretty much every time we talk about fight pass on the podcast, and if we air any grievances about the kind of product that it is offered, at least here in America, we always get some emails from fans overseas, uh, and many of them are positive. Many of them say that they enjoy Fight Pass a lot, and it's because they get to watch all of the UFC content on there. Um, so yeah, and if you live in a country where it's a good deal for you and it makes sense for you to buy it, I say by all means, man, go for it. Um, it just seems like there are some some thorny uh, rights issues that that still need to be worked out and... and uh, you know, if you want to say anything for the UFC and, and particularly for Ann Evans seems like the kind of dude who's very proactive and will eventually kind of get, try to get that figured out, I would say. Yeah, they, they do 
they are pretty responsive about that kind of stuff and trying to figure it out and just like to make it available for everybody to see it. But it also does like, you know, when, if we complain about something like some kind of early start time and people will be like, Hey, all the pay-per-views start at a weird time here. But then, yeah, you also don't pay 60 bucks to see them or like, we complain about the fight pass subscriptions and like people in Canada are like, Oh no, we get it as part of our TV deal. Like it just seems like it's through the, since MMA fandom is so connected through the internet, we're all connected with each other. And yet we all have like a completely different situation that also affects your decision of like what fight cards are worth and which ones you should stay home for and which ones you shouldn't. I feel like that was a real downer listener mail. Really? A little bit. You want a beer? No, I'm doing okay. Just like keep sh- asking though, because eventually you'll wear me maybe down. A, maybe a shotgun, one beer, and everything looks a little better. All right. Well, everyone can see if my mood has improved during round one. As for right now, though, that's the end of listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know what to do. You can go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, which comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes uh, that we miss from Monday to Friday when we're not recording a podcast and kind of a fun and humorous way uh, for you to catch up on the news. You will like it. Right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. This week, round one of the co-main event podcast is once again presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. I know there's a bunch of in-shape men and women out there listening to this podcast trying to make big life decisions, and with that, allow us to help you out. The National Academy of Sports Medicine could be for you. NASM is looking for people that want exciting careers in the fitness industry, careers where you wake up every day doing something that you love. Personal trainers from NASM improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. The NASM guarantees that you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them about the special offer. Well, Chad, you get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. So I don't know exactly where to start with this Reebok thing. Um, the numbers came out last week, the actual legitimate numbers for the tiered system by which fighters will be paid uh, according to the, the new Reebok sponsorship deal. Suffice it to say that the actual numbers were even lower than the reported numbers, which we <laughs> we actually on this show, I believe, talked about them already being paltry. When the reported numbers were we came out, uh, and then the real numbers came out, they were much lower. I would say that this led to unprecedented public internal backlash on the part of uh, fighters and independent contractors who work for the UFC, uh, which kind of points you in a direction, I guess, for how this is being received. Normally, that kind of stuff is uh, far less in public than what we saw with this particular deal. And so if that is happening in public... 
you can only imagine what's going on behind the scenes uh, and whether or not it might constitute a full scale public relations uh, and, you know, fighter relations disaster for the UFC. You know what I keep wondering is if I'm Reebok right now, I can't be happy with the way things are going because yeah. you just paid $70 million over six years, right? To partner with the UFC. You're really excited about it. And all the press that you're getting, really through no fault of your own, because, I mean, you agreed to the the deal that you agreed to and the UFC figured out how to distribute it, uh, not your fault. And yet everybody, when they're, their mouths form to say Reebok in the MMA world, we know it's not going to be positive, at least right now. Sam Alvey mentioned Reebok in his post-fight speech, uh, which was kind of an awesome post-fight speech just in general for Smile and Sam. And as soon as he mentioned it, the crowd booed like that. If you're Reebok, you're like, how did this happen? How did we give you $70 million to make us hated by your fans? Like that would piss me off if I were Reebok. Yeah. To what extent do you think they are clued into that? I mean, we, we know obviously because we are, are very clued into this subculture and, and the subculture lives on the internet and on social media. And so Stuff to us sometimes seems like a big deal and a big flap and a lot of backlash, but it may not seem that way to Joe public casual fan who's walking through the mall and sees a Johnny Hendricks t-shirt, you know, hanging in the, in the window at Spencer's or whatever. Uh, and I don't know, man, do you think that Reebok, I mean, they must know, they right? must. but they're also getting most of their information. I would assume filtered through the UFC. I mean, oh, they, they got Reebok Twitter. sees their own mentions on Twitter and therefore would know that things hadn't really been received that well but i assume that they're getting constant uh pats on the back and reassuring talks from the from ufc ownership to say that like everything's going to be okay yeah well and i'm sure the the stance from the ufc has kind of been and you know lorenzo fertita does a pretty good job of damage control with stuff like this is just to be like hey wait this just be patient this is this is going to be an evolving situation that kind of thing but like you you're right that the response from fighters, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is for one thing, you have so many fighters, like even the ones who were, who are not the, the complainer types, the one who are not going to be like the, the outspoken rabble rousers, uh, like, you know, Tim Kennedy is going to say exactly what's on his mind with, with no right. sugarcoating. So, and that's going to, that's going to happen. But even some of the other people who, who are not really in that same position and who you would, you would expect to fear their UFC reprisal a little more, even when they weren't being like, this is bullshit and an outrage, they were still pointing out like, I'm going to lose money on this. Yeah. And that's was, not a good sign. No, it was meaningful to me that Matt Mitrione went as hard as he did on Twitter because, you know, we, we have made a lot of mock of Matt Mitrione on this show before, especially with Sir Nigel on, on Master Tweet Theater. But, you know, Matt Mitrione is kind of a smart guy, really. I've interviewed him a few times he and is. he always comes off as a smart and introspective guy and a guy who has a ton of sports experience, a guy who has been around the block in terms of his athletic career and up to this point had been a real kind of company guy for the UFC in a lot of ways. Um, and to see him come out so strongly against this deal I thought was meaningful because as we discussed, and I think was in the breakfast of champions, like you just don't mess with this guy's money, no man. And no, my don't. favorite anecdote, by the way, which was also in the breakfast of champions was that Matt Mitrione once famously fired Malky Kawa on live television, uh, from being his manager for doing a job that netted Matt Mitrione twice as much money than he would receive for that same fight under the Reebok deal. Right. 
He, so he that will just, literally fire you for doing twice as well with his sponsorships. Right. That used to be a fireable offense. Now it would be like you were getting paid overtime for that. <laughs> so I, that, that, that's a clue. Um, there's a lot of different stuff to try to unravel here in this, in this, uh, Reebok sponsorship deal. I don't know exactly where we want to start with it. It seems to me like one of the most important things that I haven't heard a ton of people talk about yet is this idea of secondary sponsors. Um, because, the secondary sponsor thing seems like perhaps the best opportunity for this Reebok deal to make up the money that fighters say that they're going to lose. Uh, and that, that basically what I'm talking about is that the UFC will have the option, uh, according to them at least, um, to, to showcase one or one more, I guess it is, uh, secondary sponsor on fighters apparel during, during their bouts, uh, that I'm reading now from the Ariel Helwani story about the original conference call that they did on this. That revenue will not go to the fighters, but the UFC, however, can ask these secondary sponsors to sponsor certain athletes, as we've seen recently with the likes of Monster Energy and Bud Light. Right. You know how many fighters Monster Energy is sponsoring? How many? 11. Okay. 11 fighters. Yeah. There's like 450. Uh, UFC fighters right now. Like that's, they're sponsoring 11. Of them. Well, then did you also see Su- Suzanne Davis posted on Twitter last week, long time coming event podcast listener and, and, uh, Mav- spreadsheet maverick spreadsheet maker, I would say, <laughs> uh, that she counted up. And I think she said that the number of fighters that qualified for the top tier payment, that the $20,000, 20 fights or more Reebok payment, there was 15 fighters in the history of the UFC. What? That qualified for that. And I think, I don't want to say a number, but like even less that we're currently active, even though like three or four or five guys are about to go over that, that, uh, that marker and yeah. qualify for that. And, and those people who are veterans like that, at least the ones we've heard from, we're making more than, than $20,000 right. per fight. So, and those are the people that you'd think the, the, the UFC is going to have to take care of. And that's what I was saying. Those would be the people I would think that would be candidates to get, a secondary sponsorship, like just to use an example, um, you know, some guy who's been in the UFC a long time, let's say Michael Bisping is going to lose a lot of money on this sponsorship deal. He is. Uh, he comes in, maybe they make it up to him by putting Tommy on his shorts and having him have a Bud Light banner in his corner. He is able to make a certain amount of money back through that. Yeah. And that would, I think, be the UFC's best hope to fix this thing. And from some of the people I talked to, you know, I did a story on it last week. I talked to a lot of managers and people, you know, kind of inside the business side of it. And some of them were saying that they thought that that's what the UFC was trying to do originally was to get a couple of these sort of sponsors and a couple different uh, businesses, like one for apparel, one for, you know, energy drinks, whatever, one for something else. And to give the fighters a little piece of all of that, because what you're the problem is that you you have this situation where fighters were, you know, they weren't making maybe a ton from any one sponsor. Like, the gone were the days of, like, the $150,000, like, walkout hat. Uh, but they were cobbling together four or five sponsors and doing pretty well at the end of the day. And now you, you take all them away, you give them one sponsor. So it's not too surprising that that one sponsor won't pay them as much as they were making from, like, four or five different sponsors. So, yeah, it does seem like a volume approach would be the way to make that up. It's also, though, like, it gets us more into this question. Like, we've already talked about how the Reebok deal and making people wear, like, a uniform, how all that affects the the independent contractor status of uh, UFC fighters. But you also have to consider, like, a lot of these people... Their their current deals with the UFC, they signed months or even years ago. And they signed it with this 
in the back of their minds. Like, and, and as like several managers told me, like they have even talked about projected sponsor income when negotiating the contracts. And the UFC might, you might say like, Hey, we want more in upfront money or more in like show money uh, and more in the win bonus. And the UFC will counter, well, okay, we're not going to go all the way to where you want, but we will promise you some main card spots. Um, as long as your guy doesn't totally tank. And in those main card spots, that'll, Hey, that'll get you an extra 30, 40 grand of sponsorships, man. And, you know, and that's what the a lot of th- I think a lot of people kind of forget when we're talking about this. Like you hear people like Chael Sonnen and something, you know, being the company guy and being like, hey, you know, we never should have been able to get our own sponsors. That was just that was them being nice to us. Like, no, that was them subsidizing their own low salaries, like realizing that they weren't going to make up that money to the fighters either because they couldn't or didn't want to. Um, but saying like, OK, we'll use these outside sponsors to make this like a tenable way to make a living. Uh, and make it so that, you know, you can actually make some real money as a professional athlete. And now that's kind of going away and you don't have something, at least right now, that you're slotting in to take its place. Like, how are they not going to be mad? They can do the math. They can figure out what they were getting and look at what they're about to get. And, of course, they're pissed off. Like, you're asking them to do the same amount of work for less money. Yeah, we're running short on time, obviously, with a very complex and, and ongoing situation. So I assume that we will continue to to have this conversation moving forward. The deal doesn't even kick in until July. So there's still a chance that the, the numbers will change. And, and during the the uh, the original conference call with, quote unquote, select media, which tells you something right off the top of the, the thing there. I was not invited. I was not invited either. Uh, that, uh, you know, that Lorenzo Fertitta says these are the minimums. They're going to keep checking with these, you know, checking the numbers, seeing what works, try to make it better, trying to fix it. So we'll see what happens once it, it actually kicks in. It's just a very strange situation, though, and a situation we're going to have to monitor moving forward and frankly creates another situation, even with those secondary sponsors, where the employer is now in control of all of the... uh of the revenue streams for fighters. It reminds me a little bit about uh, coming out of the first season of the ultimate fighter. Uh, when, when a lot of those guys got Zion's sponsorships, right? which were really just UFC sponsorships, right. but they were Zion sponsorships. And you know, some guys didn't as Chris Lieben, I believe told us uh, fairly clearly, like he didn't get a Zion's contract coming out of the season of the ultimate fighter. And, and at the time at least felt like, that that was because he wasn't one of the UFC's favorites and, and, you know, some other guys got him. Of course, as history went on, Chris Lieben ended up getting more chances than almost anybody in the world to keep fighting for the UFC, but that was how he felt at the time. Uh, this, the Reebok thing, man, creates a weird situation where I don't know how you go back from it if you have to. Like if Reebok ends up at some point dropping the UFC or if Adidas sells Reebok, there's a story on Forbes.com today about the possibility of that because Adidas is suffering huge losses in their quarterly income and they're kind of under some pressure to sell Reebok, which I think has been growing a little bit with its CrossFit association and now it's, it's UFC association. So, you know, if, if Reebok sells or if Adidas sells Reebok and it winds up with someone that doesn't want the UFC around, I don't know. I don't know how you go back. Yeah, uh, so we, we're getting into some weird territory here, which I assume we will continue to uh, monitor moving forward. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two for today. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, uh, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? I don't know if you saw light heavyweight Sean O'Connell. He went out there and beat up your boy Anthony Parash. Uh, didn't take that long, uh, 56 seconds in the first round. One of those stoppages where Parash complained about it, but he also, 
He didn't even seem to realize the fight had been stopped for a few seconds. He was still kind of covering up against the blows that were no longer coming because the referee had stepped in to save him. So kind of fails the uh, what the fuck is wrong with you test for whether you're right to protest your stoppage. But Sean O'Connell got on the mic afterwards, Chad, and plugged his novel. Oh, a man after my own heart. Are you fucking kidding me? That is awesome, Sean O'Connell. I love that he used his opportunity on the UFC mic to plug his novel. And it was kind of like a, hey, like he seemed like the way you and I would also like try to plug a book where he was just like, guys, I wrote a book. Like I wrote a whole book. Yeah. The least you could do is buy it and read it. And you know what, Sean O'Connell? I'm with you, man. I did buy your book on Amazon. I got the, the Kindle edition, uh, to light us, to guard us, I believe, or maybe to guard us to let something like that seems to be about angels and demons and whatnot. Not my usual fare, but Hey, Sean O'Connell, you went out there, you beat up somebody. And the first thing you thought to do was plug your novel. Are you fucking kidding me? Sean O'Connell, you're my kind of dude. That's awesome. I'm now, I'm going to buy Sean O'Connell's novel too. Now, maybe next thing you know, we have ourselves a CME book club where we all read Sean O'Connell's novel and Talk the hell out of it. Could happen, man. And I just for the future reference, Ben, I want you to remember how awesome you think it is when people jump on the mic and plug their novels. Okay. Um, First, you have to knock somebody out, though. Did I mention that oh, part? Oh, that's going to be trouble for me. <laughs> uh, ben, I wish that my Are You Fucking Kidding Me could be quite as positive as yours. I don't even know if we've talked about this before, but it seems that overseas UFC ref Steve Percival begins his fights by saying, Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, let's smash it up. Or something like that. Smash it. I don't want to pick on. I don't want to pick on each other. I think is the it. We are people. We are not its. Well, yeah. Tell that to the UFC. Uh, I don't want to pick on Steve Percival, man. I'm sure he's a nice dude and and probably does his best at the refereeing. But at this point, I think I gotta say, are you fucking kidding me, man? Like, not all UFC MMA refs need to have their own tagline and or their own signature gesture. Everybody loves the gesture. No one can just, like when they just throw it to him. No one can just stand there and or like maybe like a classy, just understated head nod. Eventually, it's going to be like tattoos. Everyone's going to have a signature gesture and or tagline, and the people who stand out are going to be the refs that are just like, okay, you two men fight. Or the you sneeches without stars on their bellies that's is exa- what you're saying. That's exactly right. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, let's go ahead and do this right now. Stipe! Stipe! Oh, well, okay. So, Stipe goes out there against the big homie Mark Hunt, who, by the way, looked kind of awful from the very beginning yeah. of this fight. Yeah. Just didn't seem like he was all there. And two rounds in, two and a half rounds in, it's pretty clear what's going on. Stipe is just going to... Take Mark Hunt down and beat the hell out of him there. Yeah. Hunt is exhausted. Doesn't seem like he has much in the way of, uh, of an offense to come back with. And yet we got to sit through two more rounds of that thing yeah. before we finally mercifully stop this. What the hell, man? I, I want to ask what the hell in terms of just what are we doing wrong in officiating or cornering or the doctor coming in and asking Mark Hunt, honestly, can you see? Uh, and also, is this kind of a bummer for Stipe 
because it goes from being one of those things of like, hey, awesome, you beat the hell out of Mark Hunt, to be like, man, you beat the hell out of Mark Hunt. What the hell? Well, I don't think that it diminishes Stipe Miocha's accomplishment that much. I will say, as an addendum to that, Ben, do you know who I like even more than Stipe Miocic the fighter? Who? Stipe Miocic the dude. He seems like a pretty awesome dude, a Clevelandite. If you do, you follow him on Twitter. I do because he beat up Mark Hunt the night before, went to sleep, woke up at five o'clock in the morning in Australia the next day, so you could watch the Cavs play. Uh, reveled in LeBron James's game-winning shot, and then made no effort to hide the fact that he was on Twitter searching the phrases "Stepe sucks" and "fuck Stepe." <laughs> oh no! Just to keep tabs on his haters, which is something that that he does a lot. So I'm glad to see a dude, a solid dude like Stepe Miocic. Uh, rise to these heights in the UFC heavyweight division because it's it's awesome for him, it's awesome for us, the fans, and then frankly, it's awesome for the UFC heavyweight division who needs a young, in-its-prime dude to come along and kind of be a factor, and hopefully Stipe Miocic can be at least one of those guys at this point. Uh, and you, you asked about undermining his achievement against Mark Hunt, maybe a little bit, uh, just because uh, the, the fight was so one-sided, I think it was kind of a bummer for people to watch. But at the same time, this performance kind of makes Steve Miocic go from solid dude you kind of liked to now potential number one contender at heavyweight, depending on what happens when Cain Velasquez fights Fabricio Verdum at, at UFC 188 in, in June. Uh, if Velasquez wins that and comes out with the title, I would say you probably have a two-horse race then between Steve Miocic and Travis Brown for who's going to end up being the number one contender. Uh, and so that's a pretty good spot for him to be in at this, at this stage in the game. It is. It also, it's one of those fights though that were like, I'm not alone in thinking that like Mark Hunt looked weirder than usual, right? He landed, uh, his best punches came in the first round for sure. Like right off the bat, he landed one of those weird left hooks that he kind of leaps in and does. And then he landed another fairly solid punch early on. Did not seem to trouble Miocic much. And he may just have an awesome chin, but also it could have been a situation where you weren't dealing with a, a full strength Mark Hunt. I don't know. Um, and then he seemed to tire quickly. But again, man, I think you got to give credit to Miocic for that because he, he beat him up on the ground, but also beat him up on the feet, did a good job keeping Mark Hunt out at the end of his jab, which is where you wanted him to be if you're Steve Miocic. And then just effortless with the single leg takedowns. Just didn't look like he had to try at all, which I think speaks, you know, if I can speak out of both sides of my mouth, maybe made him look good, but also made Mark Hunt look extra crappy. And maybe that was because Mark Hunt had a, had something going on that we don't know about. I have no yeah. idea. He just seemed especially disinterested, even for Mark Hunt, who always seems a little bit disinterested. Yeah, but I mean, let's let's remember who we're dealing with here. Like Mark Hunt had that magical run in 2011 to, you know, 2013 where he he won four fights in a row and then you know, managed to spin that forward to get himself into a uh, an interim UFC heavyweight title fight in, in 2014. But prior to that, he had lost a bunch of fights in a row to, you know, guys like Sean McCorkle and Gegard Mousasi and Melvin Manhoff, guys True. not in his weight class, guys that he should not have lost to. So to see Mark Hunt now at 41 years old show up for this fight and maybe not look all the way invested in it, I don't know if that is a huge surprise. Yeah, okay. Well, also, you know, it makes you think for Stipe, 
where this leaves him because, you know, that fight with Junior Dos Santos, he easily could have won that decision. Right? Yeah. And if he does, then, you know, he's sitting on a, what, five-fight winning streak uh, at heavyweight there. and He's still 13-2, and two, which is pretty good. Yeah, only losses to, to uh, you know, a close decision to Junior Dos Santos and that TKO loss to Stefan Struve, um, which, I don't know, the more we see the way both those guys' careers have played out, the more that seems like possibly an anomaly, yeah. uh, if yes. you will. A situation uh, where heavyweights fight, in other yeah. words. <laughs> yeah. But, th- okay, say you take Stipe and you throw him in there against Cain Velasquez. Even if I'm willing to admit that Stipe is one of the top heavyweights, it's hard for me to see him beating Cain Velasquez. I think, like, as far as matchup-wise, it seems like a guy like Cain Velasquez runs right through Stipe. It's hard to imagine nearly anyone beating Cain Velasquez, really. And and uh I think we have to admit, though, that Velasquez is sort of an unknown quantity at this point just because of his, you know, copious, know still copious injury history at this point. I heard he died two years ago. And they've, <laughs> been, they've been covering it up. It's been a, a team of actors yeah. and body doubles. Just stapled uh, body parts together. So, I, yeah, I think it would be a tough matchup for Stipe Miocic, but it would be an interesting fight to watch just because Miocic has, a, a, you know, something of a wrestling background because they're about the same size, because they're both pretty athletic as heavyweights go. Uh, and you know, if Miocic could hang on his bike and, and match Velasquez's pace, they both have incredible cardio most of the time. It could be interesting if, if he could keep Kane from taking him down and just see if he can, if he can box him up a little bit. I mean, I think either way you go, if you end up getting Steve Miocic versus Kane Velasquez or Steve Miocic versus Travis Brown in a, a number one contender fight, uh, it's hard to complain about any of that. I feel like his emergence now, uh, at least puts a little bit of interest and intrigue around the UFC heavyweight title picture, which it could sorely need because this is a division uh, where delays are to be expected and <laughs> things almost never play out in a real linear uh, and cohesive fashion. So to have an interesting dude like Steve Miocic up near the top of the top of the pecking order, I think is kind of interesting and exciting. It is. Delays are to be expected. It's like the, it's the escalator at an airport or something. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little, little bit about the stoppage, though, before yeah. we go. Um, because that thing stretched on and on and on. And I think some of it is that Mark Hunt does seem like kind of preternaturally good at moving just enough and at just the right times. Like we saw it a little bit in that Antonio Silva fight, but like when he's down there, exhausted, stuck on bottom, getting beat up, and the ref says like, you gotta move, Mark, or you gotta improve your position, Mark, and he will move. He will not just lay there. Like, I think that a lot of that is just like him being a tough son of a bitch and having a ton of heart and he doesn't want the fight to be stopped, but he will move just enough, even though he doesn't really change too much about the fight. Um, and it makes you realize like, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe that's not as fail, fail proof a method of determining whether the fight should be stopped as we've come to think it is. Where the referee just tells you fight back. Mark Hunt tosses out a little bit of a hammer fist. And okay, the fight can continue for three more minutes of one-sided face punching. Like it seems like somebody needed to do something there. And I don't, I mean, I think the referee should have stopped it in the third round, but if he's not going to, then I think like your corner should probably step in there. I mean, I, are we just, did, did we fall in love so much with Mark Hunt's one punch power that with a guy like him, it's a terrible combination of like, he will, he wants to stay in the fight. He will do just enough to stay in the fight. And you can always tell yourself, well, hey, he might land one big punch and, and win the whole thing. Kind of. Yeah. We fell in love with his durability. We fell in love with, with his ability to come back and land that one punch knockout in fights that he's not winning like he did against, uh, who do you do that to? Is that, uh, uh, I don't have it in front of me now, but it was, uh, 
You're the, talking about Mark Hunt knocking yes, people out that, yeah. in, in fights that he's not winning. Yeah, but uh, uh, it's, we, these guys have such a hard job, man. You know, the refs, the doctor, the uh, the corner is in obviously a situation where you're friends with the guy. You don't want to – I don't know if I want to say steal his dream away from him, but like – Maybe you just don't want to pissed off Mark Hunt in the training room on Monday after you throw the towel in. I don't, I don't know. But th- this was, it got a little bit ugly. I'm not sure. Sh- when I watched it, like I was, I had already had knew about the outrage from the night before. Uh, I didn't think it was quite as bad as, as maybe the, the popular wave of outrage made it out to be. Um, I actually thought that even though the doctor asked him that weird question, or can you honestly see and defend yourself against a, a, a dangerous, a opponent. dangerous opponent to which to his credit, Mark Hunt laughed and said, of course, uh, <laughs> I thought that doctor was actually kind of thoughtful. It seemed like, especially then he had the discussion with the, with the referee, John Sharp, that, that was more detailed than just like, all right, he can go. He was kind of like, we need to watch him. If he, if he goes offline, then we need to stop this. Oh, I mean, you're uh, saying that before the fifth round. Also, like when you're asking him that, like you're trying to get Mark Hunt to save some words to you that where you can stop the fight and right. feel good about it. Like you're not, which is not, it doesn't seem like that should be really the role of the doctor. It's like the doctor shouldn't be in there to try to talk you into quitting. Like the doctor should be in there to make some kind of like medical determination. And if you're not going to do that, if you don't want that responsibility, then why are you, why bother with that? Sure. Yeah. That's a valid point. I understand what you're saying. I mean, that's you're, you're talking about, a change and an evolution in, in ringside positioning that would, you know, go against what a hundred years of combat sports history. So maybe that'll happen someday. He did hold up fingers. He held up three fingers and Mark Hunt knew how many fingers he held up. <laughs> so he was deemed good to go. Uh, no, I agree <laughs> I with you. It's, it's a, it's a valid, it's a valid point, but at the same time, like maybe one that we've just kind of come to expect in the fight game at this point, I would love to see, you know, more safety, checks and balances and better doctoring and better officiating and, and a corner that would actually throw the towel in. Uh, and that this was one of those fights where that definitely could have happened. Uh, but I didn't think it got quite as ugly as we all made it out to the third round stoppage would have been fine, but didn't happen. I think everyone's going to be okay. You think so, huh? That's my professional medical opinion. All right. Well, when, uh, when Dr. Chad Dundas, Gets sued by Mark Hunt in 15 <laughs> years. Uh, I hope that, uh, attorney at law, Chad Dundas Esquire, comes to his aid. I will defend myself, sir, in this trial of my character. Well, that's gonna do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, this weekend from Mall of Asia Arena in Pasay, the Philippines, Uriah, Christopher, Faber, and Frankie James Edgar are going to do the damn thing in the middle of the morning for those of us here stateside. Uh, but I think this still can can be regarded among the month's most anticipated fights. How are you feeling about this one? We're going to do what I believe is an assumed featherweight number one contender fight. But is this one coming a few years too late for you to fully invest in it? Or are you still all in? All in. On Frankie versus Uriah. Pretty much all in. Okay. I'm still into it. I mean, you watch what these guys have been doing recently. Uh, 
they seem about as close to ageless as you're going to find in the UFC these days. I mean, Frankie Edgar has looked solid, went out there and looked great against Cub Swanson. You know, Uriah Faber still going to win pretty much any fight that uh, there's not a belt on the line. I, don't, I mean, I'm totally into it. I also, though, wonder, like like you said, it seems like we kind of think of this as like a de facto top featherweight contender fight. And yet, there still seem to be enough moving parts in that division. And who knows what happens when McGregor and Aldo uh, square off that you can't guarantee that whoever wins this is going to fight for a title next. No, absolutely not. I mean, the both Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor have made noise about going up to lightweight for starters. Like, that just is the first thing we could bring up, even though McGregor has kind of uh, backed off that a little bit since then. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of moving pieces here. You don't know that this is going to be a number one contender fight, but at the same time, Frankie Edgar and Uriah Faber are both guys who have pretty high profiles in the weight classes below 155 pounds, and if uh, if money is guiding your decisions, I would have to think that putting either of these guys into a title fight would be an attractive option. And I mean, I think that we're, we're not being honest with ourselves. If we don't say that the best thing that could happen to either one of these guys is that Conor McGregor becomes your featherweight champion, because then, you know, not only do you not have the greatest featherweight of all time standing in your way anymore, you also have a fresh matchup. And I think that Conor McGregor against Frankie Edgar or Conor McGregor against Uriah Faber probably does pretty good business. Yeah, well, I mean, Conor McGregor versus anybody probably does pretty good business right now. Although the thing that you have to think about is if Conor McGregor does become your USC featherweight champion, it will be because he beat Jose Aldo, who you just described as the, the best featherweight in the world. So then it would kind of prove to you, would it not, like that that's going to be a tough fight for whoever ends yeah, up. Yeah, I think Conor McGregor would be a tough fight for anybody. Although, you know, now we're engaging a little bit in the MMA mathematics uh, you style still make fights and, and Conor McGregor could easily go in and win a stand-up battle against Jose Aldo and still have his hands full with a grappling-based attack from Frankie Edgar or Uriah Faber or heck Chad Mendez, heck Ricardo Lamas for all we know. Uh, so, you know, just because, uh, kid, kid McGregor goes out there and, and proves his, he's, he is what he thought we, we thought he is. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I nailed that one. Uh, he still would have some questions to answer about having a fully formed mixed martial arts game. Well, when we look at Frankie Edgar and Uriah Faber, I mean, looking at it to me, it seems like if you're, if we're looking at this in terms of like who is going to be vaulted into the UFC featherweight title shot, this seems to me like the one where like Frankie Edgar, Hey, if he doesn't get to the UFC featherweight title, big deal, right? Like he's already been a champion. He's still going to be a marketable guy outside. People love them from Frankie Edgar. But if Uriah Faber doesn't win this and odds makers don't think he will, I mean, I think Edgar is about a four to one favorite right now. Uh, Faber, a little over a three to one underdog. Um, if he doesn't win this, then that's, that's kind of the tolling of the bell, is it not? And like in a sad way for the dude who was like the WEC featherweight champ at a time when that meant being the best featherweight in the world, basically. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, the story of Uriah Faber's career is the guy who was the, the, you know, the workhorse of the WEC and the, and the, the best known and most popular featherweight just before the UFC absorbed those divisions uh, like into the octagon and, and, you know, Jose Aldo came along at just the right time to, to, you know, ride that train into the UFC. Uh, but Uriah Faber has also gotten what four or five previous shots at Zufa owned, 
uh, titles before. So it's not like you could say he didn't get his opportunities. True. Um, I think that he has said over and over again that that he he would consider it kind of a I don't know you want to say failure but like that he would he would consider it a missing gem in his career if he didn't win the UFC championship at some point. Uh so yeah, it is kind of like maybe representing his last chance now that he's into his mid 30s, he's 35 years old. Uh his last chance to to kind of seize that that greatness. But at the same time, like Uriah Faber, nothing if not like a stubborn optimist. I'm certain that since he's won two in a row now at bantamweight, dating back to his loss to Hannon Burrow, UFC 169, if he loses this fight to Frankie Edgar at featherweight, Uriah Faber probably just thinks, go back down to 135, man. Win a couple more fights, you're back in there. Oh, man, right, Faber getting too old for that shit. <laughs> it's one thing to keep going out there and fighting these young whippersnappers into your 30s. It's another thing to be losing all that damn weight, man. Uh, but, you know, fortunately for Uriah Faber, he's one of those guys, like one of the few guys who, even if he didn't get to that, like, long reigning UFC champion status, still got some paper in his bank account. He's doing all right. Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't, he's not at a point, like, where he absolutely needs to become champion the way a lot of these guys do in order to, to make any sort of serious money at all. Like, he kind of has that going for him. And I think, like, if you think, okay, say he does lose this, and say that does kind of signal that the end of that period where Uriah Faber is going to win every single fight except for a title fight, and we all kind of make peace with the fact that, you know, hey, all right, at, at 35 years old, Uriah Faber is not going to become a UFC champion. I still think we'll remember him so much for, uh, like, what he's done as, like, as far as building a team and really uh being a smart businessman and everything like he still sets a lot of like the best case scenario of what you could hope for if you were a fighter who did everything right. Yeah, for sure. Not only that, but a fighter who will totally beat you if you're not the champion. Like uh <laughs> you know, an important part of his legacy to remember also as well. Um and you know, even if he did want to soldier on for a fight or two, it's not like he would be SOL in terms of interesting matchups if he loses to Frankie Edgar if uh you know, let's say Jose Aldo retains his title against Conor McGregor. Suddenly you got Uriah Faber and Conor McGregor both coming off losses. That wouldn't be a, a a matchup that I think anyone would complain about. I think it would do pretty good business. You could put that on Fox Sports 1 as a main event if you wanted to. Take it back to Ireland. Put it on the fightpass.com as a main event. And, uh, you know, now that, that Hannon Burrow is not the champion at bantamweight, depending on how his eventual showdown, we think, with TJ Dillashaw goes, Uriah Faber will have options, man. He'll uh, he'll have options for good fights uh, in any weight class where he wants to be there. But I think that you make a good point. He's a guy who doesn't need the money. He's a smart guy. He's a likable guy. Uh, he's a guy that I think that you would want to see not stick around too long and a guy to transition into, uh, running his business and, uh, you know, running the, the team alpha male gym down there. Uh, even though with no secondary sponsors now in the UFC, the, his form athletics, so that's his company. Yeah, I yeah, think. No, yeah. And, and he was like the, one of the only. He had a couple companies, right? And he's yeah. like the guy who actually had his own companies that he could promote. And now he's not going to be able to do that. And in true you, I mean, Uriah Faber fashion, I will say, has been pretty cool about that. Yeah, he has <laughs> been pretty cool about it, especially considering you know he's going to be like he's basically topped out now, right? At the in the twenty thousand uh, dollar 
uh, category unless he fights for a title or becomes the champion. But he is one of those dudes who's definitely going to take a sponsor hit as far as just like fight night stuff. But also one of those dudes who like – and Frank Edgar I'd also put in this category of like the few people who are going to be able to keep some kind of sponsor stuff going uh, without repping them outside the cage are guys like that. Like guys who, who people actually give a damn about them beyond just like the four days before they fight. So wait a second. Are you telling me that you don't think Hani Jason is going to be able to sell his kit on when they put – the kit, the fight night kit of every fighter in every fight from every UFC event goes up on the internet. So you don't think that it's possible people are going to run to? It's possible I'm uh, underestimating Honey Jason's appeal in Brazil. I don't know. He could actually have some pretty cool gear if the Reebok people actually sat down and, and designed some stuff. They might run into some copyright issues. I don't know. But like a guy, uh, like somebody, think of like Lorenz Larkin or something. Like good fighter who's going to be on the some mongoose, main cards. The monsoon. The, the monsoon. He's going to be on some main cards. Was going to, you know, be able to get some good money in sponsorships. But also, he's one of those guys where like you don't. Unless you hear that he has a fight coming up this weekend, you don't find yourself too often sitting around being like, I wonder what Lorenz Larkin is up to. Right. Your mom and girlfriend can only buy so many kits. That's right. right. Off the internet. There is a, a kit upper limit there. Just think of how many kits that's going to be, We're going to hit man. the kit ceiling. Just think about that. Like 12 fights on a fight card every single week, 24 fighters, just multiplying by the end in six months, you'll have five different Lorenz Larkin kits on the internet anyway. Is that is that how it's going to work? You're going to make a new kit every single time? Well, I would assume dudes aren't just going to wear the same thing every time, are they? You, well, look, at, it kind of worked out for Tito Ortiz, did it not? I guess. Slap a lion head on it and call it good. Am I right? <laughs> anyway, Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff this week, uh, and then we'll get out of here. Ben, this week my Just Saying Stuff concerns uh, Michelle Watterson, the, uh, uh, the karate hottie who was recently featured in Esquire magazine in an interview for Mother's Day. This past weekend, and you might think, hey, man, Michelle Watterson in Esquire, that's awesome for the UFC and, and women's fighting and all that. I might think that. It just strikes me that eventually, man, we got to stop treating the female athletes in this sport like some kind of novelty. Like we're going to do keep doing these interviews that are like, how do you balance being a professional fighter with also being a mom? Like you don't see male fighters getting asked those questions, right? Like nobody asks Junior Dos Santos how he manages to be a fighter and also be a dad, right? <laughs> that's like, true. That, that does not happen. That's, so that's true. I'm just saying it was it's nice that that Esquire seems to be dipping its toe in in the uh in the UFC's pool right now with a couple of recent features on its fighters, but also let's try to think of some different ways to cover the, the female athletes in this sport. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, my just saying, I don't know if you watched this, uh, I believe it was on the prelims, uh, but Daniel Hooker had a great head kick knockout followed by some punches to, to lay Hatsuhiyoki out cold, face down on the mat. Uh, a vicious knockout. Now, a guy like Daniel Hooker, his name is Daniel Hooker. Yes, the meat hook? His nickname of all the options you could choose from. And the they are the meat hook. Tell me it's the meat hook. It's the hangman. <sighs> Well, that could be worse. We, just, we go worse. with just alliteration. Your last name is Hooker. You could do so many different things. And I'm not even saying just in the sex worker direction. I mean, your name lends itself to like techniques in the sport that you do, man. Yeah. And your nickname is the hangman. I have not seen a wasted nickname and name opportunity like this since Rick the Horror Story. Wow, that's... That's saying something. I'm just saying. 
Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens in the Philippines at the UFC fight night this weekend and look ahead to the weekend after that, where I assume there will be another UFC event. Sure. 187 is coming up, right? Must be. Something like that happens this month. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Sample nickname for Daniel Hooker. Classy. It works on two levels. No, I, I hear what you're, you're saying. Get, no, yeah. think about it for a second. Just don't even say anything. High class Dan Hooker. There you go. Well, high price Dan Hooker.